We're reading to, today from uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we're at verse 1. And our reading today is thus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. In our opening study last week of the human author of this epistle, reminding ourselves the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author, as we looked at the person of the man who's writing the letter, Paul, we looked at the influences that shaped him as a man. That is the Hebrew, the Greek, the Christian influences that acted upon him. The Hebrew from his background as a Jew, uh, the Greek from his birthplace in Tarsus, a a place of Greek philosophy and uh, influence, and then the influence of the Christians, which was negative at first because he was bitterly against them. We saw him in a state of rage against this new Christian movement, pouring all of his energies into the task of eradicating Jesus' people. But in our letter, we see the enormous change that has come over this man. When we read this introduction, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, Let that sink into your head as we thought of him last week, persecuting the church of God, blaspheming against Jesus, doing so intentionally, knowingly, determined to blot out the church of God. He's gone from being a a persecutor to an apostle by the will of God, by the will of God. In other words, he wants you to pay attention to that. This is not something he did by his own choice. This is not a strategy he's been working on for some period in his life. He is what he is by the will of God. That's an astounding change. And it should be an encouragement to you and I that wherever we find ourselves in relationship to God this morning, no matter how far away from Him we are, how angry we are with Him perhaps, how angry we've been with Him for many years because of things that have happened in our life, how much we've been pushing God away in our lives, it should be an encouragement to you that a person like Paul, who was so determined, so against Jesus Christ and His people, should find himself as we find him described here. Thomas Goodwin, great uh, Puritan author. He's writing in the 17th century, and therefore his language perhaps is a bit outdated. And if you say it's like your language, I'll slap you later. Uh, But Thomas Goodwin writes eloquently when he reflects on the words we've just thought about. No sins before nor yet sins after conversion, can hinder God's free grace from using a man or woman in the highest employments in the church. Isn't that interesting? It's amazing. You think of David. After he's taken and raped Bathsheba, penning Holy Scripture, You think of Solomon after his fall with his hundreds of wives and concubines and 
the gods that they brought into the palace and his playing around with those false gods, writing Ecclesiastes. Peter, after denying with oaths and curses, swearing against any knowledge of Jesus, and yet on the day of Pentecost, seeing 3,000 people converted to Christ as he preaches the gospel with the same mouth that swore blind that he did not know Jesus. And now Paul, having been a blasphemer and a persecutor, as he's told us, made an apostle of Jesus Christ. What a change. What a change can come over you by the grace of God. And if you only ask him to do it for you. Now, Paul introduces himself, not only by name, but also by his office. Paul, an apostle through the will of God. And he does that for a reason, the same reason, actually, as he does this both in Galatians and in his letter to the Corinthians. And that's because there were people in these churches, in the churches of Galatia and in the church in Corinth, that were raising questions about his apostleship. There were people who didn't know him, they didn't know much about him, and so Paul has to speak up for his office. To the Galatians he wrote, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. To the Corinthians, he writes, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I did not choose this job. Christ chose me. I did not self-appoint myself to this job. Christ did. I did not set up my own little denomination and then, and then uh, ordain myself. No, this was all the will of God. It was God's initiation, God's doing from beginning to end. But we need to raise a question. Before we go any further in the book, we need to know, and we need to all agree that we now know, what is an apostle of Jesus Christ? So I want to look at three questions this morning. The case for apostleship for Paul specifically the office of apostleship, and then thirdly, the place of apostleship in the church today. First of all, the case for apostleship for Paul himself. Let's think more generally. In the Gospels, we read that Jesus selected his disciples and told them to follow him. He would go along, he'd see people fishing, and he would say, follow me, and they followed him. In Mark chapter 3, it says he particularly selected the 12 to be with him. He appointed the 12 to be with him. And in Acts chapter 1, when they're looking to replace Judas Iscariot, who has committed suicide and denied the Lord, they start to look for someone, and this is how they put it, who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Now, Paul is disqualified from being an apostle. If that's the criteria. 
He was not with Jesus. He was not one of the disciples. He didn't go along with them. Did he he even ever see Jesus according to the flesh? We don't know. It's likely that he did, but he doesn't tell us that he did. And it's never spoken about anywhere else in Scripture. So on what grounds does Paul qualify to call himself an apostle of Christ Jesus? Well, Luke records the incident. Paul's all fired up. He's in a rage. He has the authority of the high priests, and he makes his way to Damascus, one of the great cities. He's on the street called Straight. The the street's still there, and it's still called Straight after 2,000 years. And it was on that street called Straight that, or on the way to the city, along the road that would end in the street called Straight, that we are told that there was a light from heaven and a voice from heaven. If you've ever read the story of the transfiguration, there's a parallel between what's happening to Paul here and that experience. There's a great light, brighter than the sun. There's a voice from heaven. And these are attested to by eye and ear witnesses who are around him at the time. Primary sources view it as a prophetic call that he has then a direct encounter with Jesus as the risen Lord. That is, the dead who was alive, but also as the Lord, meaning by Lord precisely what Paul will forever mean by the word Lord using the word that's used in the Septuagint in place of the Hebrew Yahweh, God's own personal name. The word kurios in the Greek, the Lord. Whenever Paul uses Lord, it always means Jesus as the God of Israel. That is precisely how he uses it in this context. We're told that he fell to the ground. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And when he talks of this meeting in Galatians, this is how he puts it. He who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach the gospel among the Gentiles. What is he saying to the Galatians? Well, he's saying to the Galatians who were really opposed to Paul, this was not my choosing. I didn't kind of sign up for this job. I didn't apply for the job. This was a divine call. There was no human agency. It was all of God. And it was all the product of a revelation of Jesus Christ. It was a revelation of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That's the way he puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. After appearing to the others during the six weeks that he was was moving around, Jesus was moving around after the resurrection, showing himself to his disciples, talking to them, and so on. Paul gets 
a resurrection appearance of Christ on that road to Damascus. And the converting power of this experience, he sums up in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's how he puts it. It is God who said, let light shine in the darkness. Looking back to creation. Let there be light and there was light. This is the God who has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And with an reference back to the transfiguration, here is Paul describing his own experience. On that day, in the brightness of that light, in the piercing nature of that voice, in that moment, and by the way, it lasts for about three days, we're told, the imminence of that moment. As Jesus comes to him and speaks to him, and comes again to him and speaks to him, and he has communion with the risen Lord Jesus for those three days. Now this, this great change in this man was not a result of some kind of spiritual pilgrimage he was set out on. It was not the result of rational reflection on things that he'd seen. Nor was it a logical deduction. Rather, as uh, one scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, puts it, it was a sudden, shattering collision. Imagine this. Here we have this man, all fired up, determined to eradicate Christianity, determined to blot out the very name of Jesus so it's never heard or used ever again, and to take all Jesus' people with him if it, if it comes to that. And suddenly this man who is so incensed against Jesus coming along the road on his way to Damascus in order to do that very thing there, he comes up against Jesus Christ. It's, it's as if his chariot crashes against Christ. His personality is confronted by Jesus Christ and all of his world up to that moment crashes to a sudden end. He is confronted the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who were there, those who met him later, agree that this encounter was with Jesus as Lord, who identified himself with the church that Paul was persecuting. And by the way, gave the foundation for Paul's, one of his unique insights into the church as the body of Christ. The body is on earth, the head is in heaven, but you touch the body, you touch the head. Anything you do to the church, you do directly to Jesus. You speak against the church, you attack the church, you abandon the church, you abandon Jesus. Jesus and his church are intimately connected. Paul learns that directly from Jesus, that what Paul had been doing to believers, he had been doing really to Jesus Christ, this divine Lord and his encounter with Christ was also a call to service, a very specific service. He was called to take the gospel beyond the bounds of Judaism in which it was progressing, but it was Paul's job to take the gospel to the world, 
to write stuff that people would be understanding and reading all across the world, every, every nation, every sort of person, whatever their background, their color, their, their status in life, or whatever it may be. It was a gospel for the world. And it gave him a unique perspective, which he explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Even if we once knew Christ, even if we once knew Christ, according to the flesh, we no longer know him that way. So the apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ. Paul can now claim that he has seen the risen Christ. He can also claim that, and by the way this would be tested, you can imagine that when he goes to Jerusalem and he meets with the apostles there, they're cross-questioning him for every minor little detail about the resurrected body of Jesus. He had been with them for six weeks. They knew him, and they would know what to ask for to collaborate, uh, to corroborate his claim. Well, that's his case, the case for Paul as an apostle. Secondly, the office of apostleship. To see the beginnings of the office, arguably the best place to look is in John's Gospel, principally chapters 13 to 17. There Jesus is in the upper room. He's in the upper room with his own. That language is used. His own are the twelve minus Judas. Judas is there at the beginning, but he will soon be cleared out. Uh, And Jesus is very clear about his origin He had come from God. His mission, to go back to God via the cross. And in chapter 13, he acts to illustrate what his mission is by taking off his outer garment, leaving him in his all-white undergarment, a long garment that had been sewn as one piece, as a priest would have, by the way, as a high priest would have. And he pours water into the basin and he stoops down and on his knees he washes the feet of his disciples. It is a quite deliberate action. It's a liturgical action. It's the action of the priest washing the feet of the other priests. Not only that, he is giving them an illustration of how he is going to go about the work that he is go- that he is going to do, he is doing it as the servant of the Lord, as we read in Isaiah, the servant of the Lord who will be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So he adopts the form of a servant, and whereas he pours the water into the basin, he is just about to go to the cross where he will pour out his life to death, as it says in Isaiah fifty-three, in order to serve God and to serve us with salvation, by his suffering, and by the pouring out of his life. Now we read that, and there's application for us. There's application for us as we read John 13 in terms of understanding why Jesus came into the world to, to, wash, to wash us clean, to purify humanity of its sin, which is what his work will do. But there's a sense in which as you read it, you understand very quickly that this is applied in the text primarily, or first of all, to the men who are there. We know that because in the process of doing it, he has interaction with Peter. uh, Peter says, don't do that, Lord. 
that's beneath you. I don't want you washing my feet. And Jesus says to Peter, well, if I don't wash you, you have no fellowship with me, no relationship. And Peter says, well, hose me down, Lord. If that's what it takes, do what you, do you like. Uh, but then Jesus says, I'm giving you this outer washing, but I'm giving it to you because you are already clean. You've already had a bath. And he's not talking then about a physical bath. He's talking about the bath of the new birth, as Titus shows. The bath of the new birth. But one of you, one of you, he, he says, isn't clean. So he's talking to these men, one of whom is Judas Iscariot and isn't clean. Well, in the process then of, dis, of, uh, pure, of washing the disciples, of illustrating what his ministry is, the ministry of a servant, Jesus then makes his own passion the measure of our service. He says this, John thirteen sixteen. The servant is not greater than his master, nor is an apostle greater than the person who sent him. The word apostle means to be sent, like the Old Testament prophets were sent. Jesus measures the dignity of the apostles by his own dignity. He says, whoever welcomes the one I send, the apostle, welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. In other words, just as people receive me, and by doing so they accept God's direction, whoever accepts the apostles and their teaching accepts me. So through the, though the foot washing, uh, Jesus makes the apostles the priests and leaders of the latter-day community, the church. And we find this throughout the upper room discourse. If you read chapters 14, 15, 16, you'll find Jesus is still talking to these men. The danger is us reading the, those chapters and thinking he's talking to us. A lot of stuff in that, those chapters that are not for us personally, but they are indirectly, but they're indirectly through the apostles. Jesus is concerned to tell them about the company, the coming of the Spirit. The whole section is addressed to these men who are in the upper room. It's these men who are going to lose their friend and master. So he says to them, I will not leave you orphans. He doesn't say that to you and me today because we've not known what it's like to be with Jesus for three years, three and a half years, and, and be in his presence and company and so on. Personally, these men did. You're going to feel orphaned, he says. And he goes on, I will ask my Father, and the Father will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. He says, I will come to you. Let a little while, and the world will see me no more. So he's talking about that particular context. He is going to the cross. He will not be seen by people anymore. But he says, I will ask the Father, and you will see me. You will see me. You'll come and see them again. In reference 
we'll see in a moment, to the resurrection appearances. Once again, he emphasizes that he's referring to the 11. Listen to him. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. That doesn't refer to us, but to them. But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That is, during our time together. He goes on to say to them, I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. In chapter 16, he repeats himself for clarity. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear it right now. They were going to lose him. They were going to see him crucified, dead, and buried. It was going to be the most horrendous thing to happen to this one they loved and followed. You can't bear it now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak in His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things to come. You see? Jesus is promising these men, these apostles, they will be the bearers of the truth about Jesus Everything Jesus would have told us, if he had time to tell us, the more truth that Jesus has to unpack and unveil for the world will be told to them. Things to come will be revealed to them. And then we turn to John 17. Another liturgical test that kind of brackets this teaching, 13 and 17. This time Jesus is the great high priest in which he performs a double function of a consecrating priest and a sacrificial victim. And he prays like the high priest prayed on the Day of Atonement. The high priest prayed for himself. The high priest prayed for his fellow priests. And the high priest then prayed for the whole covenant people of God the Israel of God. Jesus does the same. He prays for himself. Verses 1 to 4 of John 17, that he would be glorified by the cross. He prays for his fellow priests, the apostles. I've manifested your name to them. I've given them the words you gave me. He's talking only about the apostles. He even mentions and distinguishes them from Judas the betrayer. And he says to the Father, sanctify them, that is, separate them, mark them out as different from everybody else by this, by the truth, because your word, which they bear, your word is truth. Now, this idea of manifesting the sacred name, he uses this a lot in that passage, the unpronounceable name. Keep them in the name You've given me. That's the divine nature itself. And then, ultimately, he consecrates himself as the sacrifice. For their sakes, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. For the purpose of his death, he sets himself aside to to provide, to create the holy people 
of God. And then thirdly, here's where we see the role, of the, the, role the office of the apostle kicking in. Here's where they are in the scheme of things. He's prayed all these things for them. He's promised them they're going to receive a, a special anointing of the Spirit that will give them insight into all the truth. And then he says in John 17, this is the reason. He prays for all those who will believe in him by their word, because of their word, through their word. The apostolic word is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ by which, when we believe, we are saved. And to round off the office of apostle, we take all the promises that Jesus makes to these people in the room, and we find these people in the room again in chapter 20. And let me just show you the parallels. John 14, Jesus says, I will come to you. John 20, Jesus came and stood among them. John 14, Jesus said, and my peace I will give to you. John 20, Jesus came in the upper room after the, the resurrection and said to them, peace be with you. John 16, your sorrow, and you're going to be full of sorrow, your sorrow will turn to joy. John 20, the disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And then in John 17, as you sent me, Father, I have sent them. John 20, Jesus comes, as the Father has sent me, so send I you to the apostles. And then in John 20, it's all capped by the fact that Jesus then breathed upon those men in the room. He breathed upon them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The breathing, the word for breath there, is used in Genesis of Yahweh breathing the breath of life into the first man in the Garden of Eden. It's used in Exodus, sorry, in Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones, where God breathes into those, that great dead army, the breath of God, and they come alive from the dead. They're resurrected from the dead. The apostles are given the Spirit for the great work of creating a new human race, a new humanity whose sins are forgiven, who live in faith and hope and charity, such as the office of the apostle. And then very briefly, lastly, the place of apostolicity. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is this apostolic word which is responsible for the creation of the church. In Acts 2, the apostles' preaching gathers the first church. And when the first church meets for the first time, what do they do? Acts chapter 2 tells us. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and to fellowship and prayer. The apostles, you see, by their teaching, are the foundation of the church, along with the Old Testament prophets. We'll read this later in Ephesians chapter 2. You are fellow citizens with saints. You're members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the key stone. And from now on, you see, we will read the Old Testament through the New Testament. We will see from the message of the apostles how to read the Old Testament. Hence the order, apostles and prophets. So the ministry of the apostles is prior to and foundational for every other ministry in the church, the ministry of the word especially by ordained ministers. Apostolic authority is ultimate authority in the church. And where is it to be found? This is where it is to be found. The apostolic word is the apostolic authority exercised in the church. That's precisely what Paul is teaching us in the Ephesians by the way he begins the letter. We are to pay attention to this as the word of God. Paul acts on behalf of Christ Jesus. Whatever Paul says, unless he tells you it's his own opinion, which he's not averse to saying, as he does in Corinthians, everything else he tells us about God and about Christ and about the Christian life and so on, he is saying in place of Christ, as Christ, to us. That's why he says, for example, to the Galatians, if even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now you know why I don't like red-letter Bibles. Because when we read Paul, we're reading Jesus. When we're reading John, we're reading Jesus. When we read these New Testament writings, we're reading Jesus. In fact, what Jesus would have said to us was, whatever you read in the Old Testament, these scriptures bear witness to me. You're hearing me. You're seeing me. You're listening to me as you listen even to the Old Testament scripture. The apostolic word is described to Timothy as the good deposit. So, Timothy is in the same kind of position that any ordained teaching elders are in today, uh, uh, and elders as a whole, in fact. We have been handed the deposit of truth. It's not something we're adding to. It's not something we can make up uh, or, or uh, you know, uh, put to good use and then make it multiply or whatever. No, we get the stuff. And, and here's the thing. Whatever we got when we were ordained, when we die, we hope we haven't interfered with it. We have been faithful to it, that we've unpacked everything that's in it and not held anything back from the people of God that they need to know in order to know the mind of Christ, the good deposit. It's defined there as the pattern of sound words. 
Paul says, that you have heard from me. That is from Paul. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul links his own teaching with that of the sacred writings, that is the, whole, the Old Testament, and gathers them together and he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So let me remind you of two things as we close. The apostles are Jesus' envoys. They are in place of him. They are him in their work that they do. Uh, That's why, for example, at the beginning of Acts, we read that uh, in reference back to the book of Luke, where Luke has told us the story of Jesus, he says about Luke, those things are the things that Jesus began to do Now I'm going to tell you the things Jesus continued to do through his apostles. So it's their envoys of Jesus. Secondly, the apostolate is an extraordinary office. There's ordinary offices in the church that are to last until Jesus comes back again. Elders and deacons and deaconesses. Those are ordinary offices in the church. The apostles is an extraordinary office. And one of the reasons for that is that they were given the ability to demonstrate that they were apostles by the signs and wonders they performed. That's why in Acts you read about the signs and wonders that were done by the hands of the apostle. People took note of the apostles. What did they take note of when they heard them teach? And when they saw them do these signs and wonders, this is just like Jesus. They're doing what Jesus did. And they're doing the signs and wonders that authorize Jesus' words. The signs and wonders are authorizing their words. So I must listen to them every bit as much as I listen to Jesus. In fact, Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And we read in Acts 4 that the people recognized that the apostles had been with Jesus. So there is a final authority in the church. It's the authority of Scripture Why is it the authority of Scripture? Why should we take the New Testament seriously? Why should we believe what we recited earlier today in the Apostles' Creed, those major points of Christian teaching? Why should we receive those as the Word of God to us today? Why should we believe that they are infallible, that they are without error, and that they are perfect? Because Jesus made provision for that. He made provision that they would remember all the things he said and did. And they did. You read the Gospels. He said that they would be led into all the truth. Look at the ways in which they were able to expound the things Jesus had said. and Open them up for us. You have in your hands the lively oracles of God. The very word of God. 
Jesus talks to you from every page, every sentence, through the instruments that he uses. And he does so for your, for your good and for your ultimate glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that you appointed the 11 and that you added Paul to the list and that from our brother Paul we hear the voice of Jesus say so many sweet and precious things to our souls. We pray that you would instruct us and build us up in our faith and that those who are watching and listening with skepticism, Lord, might have their skepticism washed away by truth, that the light would dawn in their minds and would lead them to him whom we love, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.